Charlotte Leslie, the Managing Director of the Conservative Middle East Council. We are fast approaching the publication of the so-called Strategic Defence and Security Review, also known as the Integrated Review. This will be one of the most significant reconfigurations of Britain's defence and security needs in a decade. In a series of podcasts, we look at what this defence review means for the UK and its relationships with the Middle East and the rest of the world. For our first podcast, we're very fortunate to have none other than the Chair of the Commons Defence Select Committee, Tobias Elwood MP, to open our series of interviews with defence experts. Today, Tobias talks with Professor Michael Clark from King's College London. Tobias, thank you so much for joining us. That's enough from me. Can you tell us a bit more about the review and why it matters? This is uh, the periodic stock check, if you like, of the nation's strategic health, the threats that we face, our ambitions in the world. And it's really important for the Ministry of Defence because it also determines how much money we'll be going to be spending in the various aspects of our defence architecture. Now, this particular review is long overdue because, as we're all aware, the world is changing fast and furiously. That's not just because of climate change or because of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's also because threats and challenges are emerging all the time, and the world is changing very, very fast indeed. There's an evolution in the character of conflict too. But moving around the world, we've got some usual customers, if you like, that present challenges, what's happening in Iran. We've also got the continuing issues to do with the resurgent Russia. And then, of course, we have a rising China. So some big challenges there for us to discuss today. And the very start of this series, I'm really delighted to welcome Professor Michael Clark, formerly served as Director General of the Royal United Services Institute and in 2001 was Deputy Vice Principal and Director for Research Development at King's College London, where he remains a visiting professor of Defence Studies. Professor Clark is also a specialist advisor in the House Commons Defence Committee for over two decades, and he's also advised the government on a number of important issues, not least national security, UK defence trade policy, and has also served as an advisor to the Joint National Committee on Security Strategy. So very much welcome, Professor Clark. Michael, if I may call you that today, let's begin by just summarising, if you can, the importance of this particular review in this moment in time. Yes, thanks, Tobias. It's it's a great pleasure, actually, to take part in discussions like this because they are extremely important. And the integrated review, as you say, that's it's it's got a very sort of very long title, but that's its shorthand title. The integrated review is absolutely necessary because we've needed more of a review since the the last big review of 2015. There was another sort of steady as you go review in 2017, and then a little addendum to that from the Ministry of Defence. But the circumstances of Brexit. The things that are changing in the world for the 2020s mean that global Britain has got to, as it were, rethink or at least refocus its objectives. What do we want out of global Britain? How much is Brexit going to affect our interests in the world? 
and, as it were, to audit our capacities. What have we got that we need to either redirect a bit more or are we happy as we are with what we're doing? I mean, by and large, we spend about just over $60 billion a year on all of the external directed elements of policy. So about $40 billion of that, of course, as you know, is defence. And $20 billion is everything else. It's what we spend on foreign policy, on foreign aid, on the intelligence services, on some of the big research and development things that affect the external environment. So we're spending about $60 billion a year, which is 3% of our GDP, our old GDP before COVID. So 2% of that was defense, another 1% on everything else. The question is, is that about right? Should we be spending 4% of our GDP on all of these things? Or should we reorganize the, the priorities within the 3%, the 60 billion that we are spending? These are big issues. And of course, as you said in your introduction, we're facing a major series of uncertainties as we now look towards the next decade. So if ever we've needed a really comprehensive review, a real no holes barred, no sacred cows from the bottom up review, it's probably now. So the order in which we looked at it in the Defence Select Committee was the first question is, what are the security threats and indeed what are the global opportunities around the world? The second question is, what's Britain's response to that? How do we fit in? What are our ambitions? And then the third is, well, how do you then design your defence posture to respond and support those ambitions? If you agree roughly with that, what do you believe are, let's say, the, the big changes that uh, differ from the last time we did this exercise, which, as you just touched on, was in 2015? Yes, and the Defence Committee's report on this, what, two, three weeks ago now, I thought laid that timetable out really well. And, of course, we should always try to start at the top and to say, what are our interests? And if you look at Britain's interests in the 2020s, my point, and what I've been writing on for the last three or four years, is that all of the European powers are going to feel pretty uncomfortable in the 2020s because the rise of the big powers were moving back into a new great game of politics between Russia and China and the United States and India. Those are the big four powers for different, all for different reasons. But the rest of us are looking for, as it were, strategic space in these big geopolitical wheels which are turning between those four powers. And of course, what matters most to us is the resurgent Russia that you mentioned and the global challenge that China is determined to pose and its relationship with the United States. Those are the things that matter most to us. And so for the 2020s, we're going to have to reprioritize quite a lot of what we think is important. And so we need to, in my view, do more on defence. And I, I think we need to concentrate more of our defence on the European theatre in general, the broad European theatre and the North Atlantic. And Brexit Britain has got to prove that it is thoroughly European in its security outlook, that we are only leaving the EU. We're not leaving our European neighbours and we're not leaving the neighbourhood. And I think the security aspects of that, personally, I think we should be concentrating on that. But on other aspects, we've got to regenerate our trade relations. We've got to do much more on soft power. We're a soft power leader in the world, a soft power superpower. And there's much more that we could do on that. But we've got to be prepared to coordinate for it and integrate some of our, our abilities and to fund it properly. So I think we can face these difficult years of the 2020s if we can re-strategize and reprioritize some of the instruments of policy that we have got. But for sure, 
there's going to be no free lunches in the next 10 years. And quite a lot of the things that we have felt comfortable about in the last 40 or 50 years, like an easy relationship with the United States, we cannot now take for granted. Whoever wins the presidential election on November the 3rd, it won't be an easy ride with the US because the US is changing. And our relationship with Russia is not as one-sided as it was 10 or 15 years ago. Our relationship with China has changed a lot as the Chinese are now deeply integrated into our economies. And so there is a, a real interdependence between you know, what we disapprove of in China's policy and the sort of leverage that they have over us. So those are the, the sorts of issues we've got to grasp in this review. And then, in my view, reprioritize quite a lot if the review is going to be genuinely integrated and genuinely forward looking. Well, really interesting to, to hear you divide up between our allies and our adversaries that neither can be taken for granted and both must be understood. Let's start with the United States. And then again, because this is all about Britain, what should Britain be doing about it? What role would you like to see Britain play? Yes, the United States is still our, of course, it's our natural ally and our, our natural as it were, Western world leader and the, the economy of the United States is going to still be one of the drivers of world politics for a long time to come. And its sheer physical power will still be of major importance in the world. But the point is, the US is much more a Pacific orientated power now than a, an Atlantic orientated power. And the days when we could think we had a, an absolutely natural affinity with the US may now be passing. Of course, you know, we've always had rows with the US before, but we could always get over them. But if it is the case that our view of world politics is beginning to diverge, which I suspect it is, then that's not disastrous, but it means we've got to work at it. And I think the American view of world politics has not really been particularly consistent since the middle of the Clinton era. And, you know, we can obviously argue about where, where American policy is going. But even if we have a, a Joe Biden presidency for eight years starting next year, it will not feel like the Clinton presidency did or even the Bush presidency. The United States is pursuing more self-interestedly its own agenda, more of its own agenda, and it's less willing to explicitly lead the Western world and it looks to its allies to take more responsibility for all sorts of things. And so where does that leave Britain? It leaves us, as it were, having to pursue a very interesting balancing act, but we've got to actually show our European partners that we are still the leader in European security. And if the United States is more interested in the Gulf and the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, the fact that they can, as it were, leave the Atlantic to the Europeans, led by Britain and France and the E3, Britain, France and Germany, but with Britain taking a big lead on the physical military side, that actually is quite a good bargain that the Americans can live with. And we've got to articulate that, but we can't ignore the fact that over the last few years, we've differed with the Americans on some really important issues. You know, we've differed with them over arms control. The Americans from the Bush administration onwards have been backing away from arms control that we very much regret. We've differed with them over relations with Iran. We differed with them over military commitments in, in northern Iraq and in the civil war on Syria. You know, these are some quite big issues. They're not just atmosphere issues. They're specific issues where when we've been pushed to it, Huawei, I guess, is another one in relation to China, we have sided generally with our European friends, generally, where we have to make a choice. And I suspect that that is going to increase in the future. So we've got to, as it were, 
balance and massage that relationship. And let's be a hard-nosed, good partner, which the Americans value, not because they like us. We know that they like us, but we need them to respect what we bring to the relationship. I'm reminded of a field marshal, Sir John Dill, that you might be familiar with, who mm, started yeah. the special relationship during the Second World War. He was sent by Churchill to be our man in, in Washington and was actually quite pivotal in, I think, drinking a lot of whiskey, actually, and uh, speaking with Dulles and Marshall the, in, in helping shape not only the World War II strategy, but also the post-World War world. Do we lack a modern-day John Dill? Do we have somebody in the room in Washington, D.C.? Or are we too distracted ourselves to be pursuing this and doing things on the international stage? The last person I can think of who, or the last couple of people, Nigel Scheinwald and uh, David Manning, played those sorts of roles from Downing Street into the United States. And they did quite a job in the end of the Blair era, really, the, the Brown era and the beginnings of the, of the present conservative governments or conservative-led governments. They had an influence, there's no question about it. I don't know that there's anyone on either side of the relationship at the moment who performs that role. And it's helpful when you do have that role. The militaries, in a way, because the politics of both sides have differed, and for sure, you know, we have been distracted. I mean, the Americans have got their own issues with Trumpism and populism. We've got our own issues with the, the distraction that Brexit is, whether it's right or wrong, it is certainly a distraction from normal politics. And while those two, as it were, politically distracted leaderships have gone forward, the military relationship has become actually more important. The fact that our CDS and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of always got on well. The fact that our armed forces linked together very well has been very important. And they see themselves, I know, as trying to maintain the relationship in times of political drift. And that's great, but you can only do that for a certain amount of time because it's not the military's job to, to play politics and they certainly don't like doing it. And so in a way, it's a bit of an elastoplast. It's a plaster on the problem. But somehow our political establishments have got to start to re-engage much more specifically. I mean, if you look at, you know, the sort of things that Secretary of State Pompeo has said when he's come over to Britain, when he's been arguing about Iran and the, the Huawei issue, I mean, these guys pull no punches. They're quite insulting. There is much talk about a Five Eyes. I mean, you touched on India or a D10, sometimes it's called, a group of nations that perhaps can be the genesis for a new world order and start to create the basic trading and security platforms to counter perhaps the rise in, in what we're seeing from Russia and China. Do you see that happening or do you think it has potential? For sure. The E3, the European three, Britain, France, Germany, quite outside the European Union connection, are the most significant players in world politics from a European perspective. And the E3 obviously have been distracted by Brexit and other things recently. And there may be some fallout if we go into no deal territory at the end of this year. There may be some fallout within the E3, which takes a little bit of getting over. But in the medium, short to medium term, but certainly in the medium to long term, it's really important that the E3, as it were, try to stick together and try to develop common policy positions on world politics and that the E3 are able to plug in to the great power politics which are taking place around them. And when we think about India, for instance, I mean, you know, India was not particularly strategically minded until about seven or eight years ago. And, Ch and China's rise to be a world power under Xi Jinping, the fact that China is now quite aggressively behaving like a, a power with rights in the world, 
has provoked the Indians to be far more strategic. And so when we turn away from the North Atlantic, from our American relationships and our Russia worries, and we think, what about the rest of the world? Europe has a big incentive to create a much better relationship with India. And of course, for Britain, we've got a special history with India, but it's like walking on eggshells, to be honest. And somehow we've got to get over that. We've got to get over the post-colonial fallout from our relations with India. And I believe that we can. And that the Europeans in general have got to try to, as it were, influence the strategic development of the relationships between India and China and the trading relationships that will occur in East Asia. In the next 20 years, more than 90% of the growth in all world trade will be outside of the European Union. And most of it will be in Asia. And so there's a lot to play for in the Asian markets, in Asian stability, for good and bad, in the Indian Ocean and in Southeast Asia. And we've got to find a diplomatic way and an economic way of playing in that space, of being a, a presence in that space, Brexit Britain has, even though there's not much we can do in crude security terms, but we've got to do it primarily through economic, diplomatic and soft power channels. Let's just pivot across to our adversaries or competitors, depending on uh, where you might sit. Now, firstly, on Russia, we have a leader who's, I think, pretty much secured the job for life. He's invested heavily in his military, but his economy is about the size of Italy's. How should we be countering Russia's resurgent activity? Yes, we're, we're now facing somebody who's often called Putin the indefinite. He'll be there now until he becomes a drooling fool, which anybody who stays in power too long does become. And that's what we're facing. It's, it'll be a new version of Brezhnev in a few years' time. But it's not likely to change because Russia is a kleptocracy. It's effectively become a gangster state. And Putin and the oligarchs around him control the economy. And so they're not going to give that up. And there's, it's hard to see any sort of peaceful transition or an easy transition towards a, a more open, let alone democratic Russia. But as you say, the Russian economy is, it's about two thirds the size of ours. I mean, it's three times the size in population, more than three times the size, but it's about, two, it's about two thirds of our size. So it's an economy which is not going very far. It's suffered greatly because of the fall in energy prices since 2008. It was cash rich and that was holding it up. The Russians boast that they can live on an oil price of about $40 a barrel. I don't really think they can. And the oil price is struggling to be $40 a barrel. It's probably going to go lower than that and back down towards the $15 or $20 of, of last year. So they do have a real problem and they're spending a lot of their reserves just trying to hold it up. Overall, when you look at Russia's demographic pressures, it is on the wrong side of history in almost all respects. So it's a weak and weakening state with a, an autocratic leadership and the biggest concentration of nuclear weapons anywhere in the world. Just in, in sheer volume terms, it's got more nuclear weapons than anyone else. And a military establishment, which is pretty ropey, but has been recovered and re-engineered in certain key respects, the respects that, that bother us. So the Russians have got the sort of military capacity to operate in and around the neighbourhood of Europe and even inside the neighbourhood of Europe through hybrid war and the, the use of, of subversive tactics and the little green men that we saw in Ukraine, you know, 5,000 of them all apparently on holiday together. All of these sorts of things are now part of our security environment. You know, what can we do about it? Well, first of all, we have to maintain NATO unity. The easiest thing for the Russians is to keep eating away at NATO unity to try to push the Americans out of its commitment to Europe 
to create differences between Britain and Germany and Italy and everybody else and to separate the North Europeans, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, to threaten them and create a charm offensive towards Romania and Bulgaria and Serbia and Slovakia to try to pull these you know, the whole edifice apart. So first of all, we've got to prevent that. Secondly, in a way, we've got to go back to containment ideas. People don't like using the word because it sounds as if we're just walking ourselves into a new Cold War. But containment does work where you say, look, these are red lines and we will defend them. Don't push us over these lines. We will defend these red lines, both territorial and political red lines. But if you observe those red lines, of course, we want to collaborate. We want to cooperate. But we'll call you out when you try to poison people, as in the Skripal poisonings. We'll call you out when you try to poison Navalny. We won't just pretend these things are not happening. But if you want to talk about trade, if you want to talk about cooperation, if you want to talk about cultural relations, of course, we're more than happy to do so. And that containment philosophy, I think, is something that we must fall back on, because if we don't, we'll find ourselves being split apart and the Russians then will dominate the European agenda. This is what they like, is to say, you know, we, we don't interfere in other people's affairs, they say, but when you're thinking about this or that, you must take Russia's view into account. And they like to, as it were, hold that political blackmail position whereby the Russian agenda sits above everybody else's political choices. How is Russia influencing the United States' involvement or commitment to Europe? If Mr. Trump is re-elected, then NATO could be out of business in four years if the European members of NATO don't step up to the plate much more assertively. Most of the tension between the United States and, and Europe is, is of our own making, but the Russians have an easy ride with this because they're able to say to the Southern Europeans, why do you believe in the United States? Look at them. Just look at what the US does. Look at how aggressive the US is. Look at how, how little they care for you. But we, fellow Slavs, if we're talking to the Serbs or the Bulgarians, we understand. And, and look at the, what the Russians have tried to do over the COVID crisis. They've created all sorts of photo opportunities to offer aid to other countries, particularly in Southern Europe. And they quietly say to the Southern Europeans, are you sure that you're really doing yourself any good inside the European Union, inside NATO. You know, there are more flexible ways to think about security. And it's, it's a, quite effective in drawing away populations and, and publics and leaderships who find the United States and the Trump administration recently so objectionable. There, there is a, a sense here in which the news around President Trump has a big political effect on public opinion in Southern Europe. Not so much in Northern Europe, where people are more philosophical about it, and I think take a more long-term view. But it certainly plays out in places like Greece and Macedonia and Slovenia and Serbia. Would you agree that this rise in China is something to be concerned with? How do we deal with this new superpower on the bloc? Ten years ago, the fashionable view was that as China emerges onto the world stage, it will learn the rules. It will see that it is in its best interest to follow the rules-based international order. And China will be habituated, almost in a partnership. All the indications are is that, again, Xi Jinping is an old-fashioned dictator. He is not flexible. He's given himself power for life. And China doesn't seem to be prepared to be habituated into the rules of world politics. So what we've got is a sort of dualism in China. One of the dualisms is that the Chinese follow the rules of world order when it suits them and completely ignore them when it doesn't. 
So, for instance, they were arraigned at The Hague over their nine-dash line in the South China Sea, which is this claim to virtually all the waters of the South China Sea, and they were taken to The Hague by the Philippines. And the Philippines won on every single point. The Chinese lost on every single point that they were arraigned legally over in terms of maritime law. And they just said, who cares? Ignore it. Pay no attention to it whatsoever. So they ignore it when it suits them. But there's a dualism in another respect as well that really matters to us. In Southeast Asia and in the Pacific, the Chinese are pursuing really 19th century style security policies. They're building islands out of coral atolls in the Spratlys and the Paracel Islands, your Fiery Cross Reef and Mischief Reef, are now big air and and soon-to-be sea bases. So they are playing a 19th century game of territoriality and physical power, having their aircraft and ships deployed forward in what they call the first island chain, and increasingly in a few years' time in the second island chain. So they're moving into the Pacific, and they claim all sorts of territories that nobody else believes, that nobody else recognises. So they're playing a very old-fashioned game there. In relation to the United States and Europe and most of the developed world, they play a very new sort of game. They're not a, a physical military challenge, certainly not at the moment and probably not for the next 10 years. But the economic challenge is phenomenal because the Chinese use the power of their economy, the interdependence of their economy with ours, in order to threaten all sorts of dire consequences if we don't do what they like. Now, we haven't seen the worst of this yet, but we've seen the threat of it. And it takes nothing to make them resort to these threats. And whenever something like the Huawei decision comes up, the Chinese ambassador here, Lu Xiaoming, you know, says this will have serious economic consequences. You, know, you don't know how foolish you're being. And so we're going to have to face down these threats and find ways of making ourselves more resilient. Interesting developments between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Iran is also going through more difficulties with the loss of Soleimani. Lebanon, clearly affected by not only COVID, but also that terrible incident that took place, but also highlighting the the role of Hezbollah. It continues to play a less than helpful role in in Lebanese politics. Looking ahead at the next few years, where do you think the, the flashpoints will be? And where do you think Britain might be interested in getting in further involved in the, the Middle East? Western influence across the Middle East has been in fairly sharp decline in the last 20 years. Some say it was because of the Iraq war. That's not really true. But the Iraq war certainly accelerated a, a trend towards disengagement. And what we're seeing in the Middle East is the rise of the four powers that really matter. There are only four really strategically important powers in the Middle East. And if you look at a map or look at any population statistics, economic statistics, it's very obvious who they are. It's Egypt, Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, those four. And you can see the role of all of those four evolving quite quickly over the last four or five years. And so politics in the Gulf is beginning to change. Saudi Arabia is trying to emerge as a a regional hegemon. It's not doing very well at the moment. But the effect of that has been to create a lot of uncertainty in the Gulf, mainly over the role of Iran, which is determined to, to play a regional role. But the Iranians have been kicked back quite heavily in certainly the last couple of years, and they made a complete mess of their reaction to the Soleimani killing, by shooting down an airliner in the same week. And they've been on the back foot ever since, and the Lebanon crisis puts them further on the back foot. But the, you can see that the politics across the region between Iran and Saudi Arabia has opened up a real avenue for Israel 
to move towards accommodation with other members. The Israelis are now forming common cause with the anti-Islamists, with the conservatives in the Gulf. The UAE is now extremely active, not always constructively in my view, but it is extremely active and in some, in some respects quite aggressive in the region. And the UAE and Saudi Arabia have formed a, a fairly close relationship trying to drive, as it were, a regional change which, which kicks back against Iran. And then on the other side of it, Turkey is playing a much bigger role across the Middle East. So you can see an active Turkish role in, in northeast Syria, in northern Iraq, in Libya, in Qatar. Nobody quite knows whether Mr. Erdogan of Turkey has got a clear view of what he's doing, but he is certainly, as it were, reinserting Turkey into all the places that the old Ottoman Empire used to have influence. And Egypt, somewhat, somewhat similarly, it's been out of the game strategically for some time because of the, the, the successive revolutions going back to 2011. But Egypt now is important in terms of what's happening in, in Libya, in what is possible in relation to the Palestinians and a, a new attitude towards Israel and to Lebanon. So the future for the Middle East is, is no fewer flashpoints. If, if anything, there'll be more flashpoints. But there is less and less that the West can do about these things. And the relationships between Egypt and Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Iran will be the more determining factors. What does that mean for Britain? Well, I think it means that we should strengthen all of our friendships, which are fairly considerable across the Gulf. And I think the, the idea of having a greater naval presence, the newly opened base, HMS Jufair, you know, in Minas Salman, I mean, that base used to exist in the 1930s. It was closed in 1971, reopened in 2018. There is thought that one of our aircraft carriers might be there quite frequently. And that base is in Bahrain, I should say. All sorts of things we could do in order to strengthen our friendships with the Gulf, because the contributions we can make to regional stability will be very much in our economic interests in the years to come. But there's not much, I think, we can do over issues like Lebanon or even the Palestinians or Gaza. And I think France is taking a much bigger role in those areas. And I think that's a, not a, an unreasonable division of diplomatic labour between us. But these are all countries that Britain has strong relationships with. I mean, we visited them. CMEC visits these countries on a regular basis, taking MPs out there. Yemen, we're the UN Security Council penholder. Saudi Arabia, we are you know, responsible for a lot of arms trade with them. We've got a base in, you touched on HMS Jafir in, in Bahrain. We have our own base in Cyprus too. Should we not be doing some quiet diplomacy? You talked about us being a soft, power, superpower. Could we not you know, be doing the Henry Kissinger thing a little bit more locally in, in the Middle East to help iron out some of these challenges? Oh, yes, we could. I wish we would. I don't see the Middle East as a place for great military involvement other than you know, reassurance in the Gulf. But politically and in terms of foreign policy, there is quite a lot we could do simply by showing that we understand the region, although I have to say I don't think diplomatically we have understood it as well in the last 30 years as we used to 50 or 60 years ago, but we could get that back. And yes, we are still respected in the Middle East more than many other countries, and we are still regarded as a country that has a sort of a, an entry point into United States policymaking. I don't think we should play that up too much. And there is still, of course, the respect that our foreign service and our diplomats are held in around the world and still within the Middle East. Now, you've been around the defence world for some time. We've got fantastic 
exports and links across the world. But we don't sell a lot of finished kit, if I can put it that way. Not many people buy our tanks. Not many people buy our planes. Not many people buy our ships. Is there a reason for that? By and large, it's because our forces are fairly small, so we don't produce them in big enough numbers for ourselves to make the unit prices more attractive. And also, if you're only operating a very small number of platforms, you simply can't advertise them in the way that the United States or Russia can around the world. So it's not surprising in a way that some of these platforms don't seem so attractive to other countries. But I'm not as concerned about that as I am about the loss of high-tech and innovative technologies and component supplies, if we're talking about the arms industry, which are world-class in Britain, and they don't do as well as they should do. And one of the things that I would like to see the Integrated Review address is the amount of money that goes into our research and development. I mean, across the whole country, across all sectors, our R&D spend is about 30 billion a year. That's private and governmental. And government is only about three to four billion of that. It's only about a tenth of the, of the amount. That's way below, in total terms, 30 billion is way below what most of our OECD competitors are spending. It puts us in the bottom half. It's less than 1% of our GDP. If we're going to compete as Brexit Britain, as globalised Britain in this new world, we've got to think much more about how to regenerate and support and, and stimulate the really excellent research base and the science base that we've got in Britain. Typically, the old story keeps repeating itself, where something is developed in Britain and then at the production stage, it is bought by a foreign company because we can put one and a half million in to developing the science of something or two million. And then we need 50 million to take it to the next stage. They can't get it in Britain. So they get it from China or they get it from an American entrepreneur. Should we not be pursuing more joint projects as we do see with some of the sort of the big ticket items such as uh, the F-35? Yes. The F-35 may turn into a real success story for us because, remember, we're a tier one collaborator in that. We put two billion in at the very beginning of the project and we're the only tier one collaborator. So not only does some of the work for the F-35 come to Britain, but the more F-35s that are sold in the world, the more of a, a cut that we get in the income. So if the F-35 turns into a really successful aircraft over the next 30 years, which it probably will, sell upwards of 3,000, then that will be a nice little earner for Britain in the future. It's not an immediate element, but it may reflect the fact that being a tier one collaborate contributor with our original two billion investment might turn out to be a very good investment indeed. But beyond that, the next aircraft after the F-35 or the next, the next generation, sixth generation aircraft is going to be the Tempest, as that's its present name. And because we're not going to be developing this with France and Germany, who are going their own way, and that's partly a, a Brexit issue, if we are going to develop a new aircraft, then we have the opportunity here to collaborate with, let's say, Japan and Australia and other new partners. There's no end to the sort of collaboration in which we could be the principal prime producer with really good collaborative arrangements with other countries that do the sort of high-tech aerospace that we're interested in. And always in politics, you know better than most, Tobias, that when countries come together, it's normally based around some sort of grand project, like the Channel Tunnel. Stories in the last week suggest that difficult choices are being made over helicopters versus tanks, reductions, as we touched on in the F-35. I think the maritime footprint is also under question. This does suggest, perhaps, that we are going about it in the wrong order. 
I really worry for, I think, the same reasons that you do, that what was started off as an intellectually challenging and honest exercise is falling back into the 2010 review or the options for change review of the early 1990s, which is just a device to try to save money in the immediate circumstances. If we are saying that this is our review to set our technological future for the next 20 years, then I don't think we should be rushing it. We shouldn't be trying to bring it out just because the comprehensive spending review is coming out in November. We should give ourselves enough time to get it right. And I really worry that what started as an excellent exercise is going to come out as a a sort of quick and dirty money-saving exercise. I hope I'm wrong about that. I'm sure you hope you're wrong. I'd love to be proved wrong on that, but I don't think I'm going to be. Well, that's a sober point uh, to end on. Let's hope the government is listening because it's so important that we do get this right, given the circumstances that we face ourselves in a very uncertain world. Michael, Professor Clark, can I thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast and very much appreciate all your thoughts and insight. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure.